So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to, to have faith. Kind of a common topic generally and, and really um, it's what our passage speaks to. But one of the things that I want you to realize is that faith can come in all kinds of forms. For example, uh, I told you I was a men's basketball fan so you knew this was coming. But people have a lot of faith in the upcoming seasons for our basketball team. Uh, we're getting better recruits. We have a proven system. I've heard more than one people say in recent weeks, hey, listen, as long as we have Coach Beard as our coach, we're going to be in good shape. We have faith in our team because we believe in our coach. So that's one kind of faith. But I realize not everyone's a sports fan, right? Some of you are more academic than you are athletic. But scholars have faith as well. Scientists believe in future advances based on past accomplishments. See, the scientific method works. We have plenty of amazing discoveries to prove that that's true. Scientists have faith in their research because they fully anticipate future advances because of that. But when we look at religious faith, sometimes I feel like we put it in a whole different category. Like, it really doesn't apply to those other realms. It's almost like uh, religious faith is blind faith. But I want you to know I do not believe that's true. In fact, I can consider a definition I want you to think about that would apply to all these areas of faith. This is a, a general definition that applies across the board. Okay, here it is. Faith is the belief in what we don't know based on the conviction of what we do know. Okay? Faith is the belief in what we don't know based on the conviction of what we do know. Now, back to my example, it's certainly true with the basketball team. After their success this year, it's not a big stretch of faith to believe that we're going to have future success, right? We have an awesome defense. We have a, an incredible strategy of winning games. And so with all the success we've had, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith to believe that there's more to come. Well, science is the same way. The hope of future advances is based on past accomplishments. But the Christian faith is no different. We can't put this in some other category of, of wishful thinking. The Christian faith is based on a confidence in what we know to be true. The Bible describes it this way. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So to apply that to my definition, the assurance and, con and conviction of what we don't know is based on the assurance and conviction of what we do know. You see, the reality is everyone, to a person, is a person of faith. What distinguishes us, what makes us different, is the object of our faith. The fact of the matter is, nobody has all the answers. Our belief in what we don't know is based on the conviction of what we do know. And as a Christian, we need to understand and, and believe that God doesn't just leave us guessing. He has made himself known. And we can trust the heart of God because of what we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the basis of our conviction. He is the assurance of our faith. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. 
So we know that in this life of faith, there are some times that we have to, to believe in things that we, quite frankly, don't fully understand. We understand that, that our view is limited with, with a finite understanding, right? But we serve a God whose wisdom is based on an infinite knowledge. Our view is limited based on a finite understanding. His wisdom is based on an infinite knowledge so that when we don't have all the answers, He's still worthy of our trust. And as we look at our passage this morning, you're going to see that play out. And I hope it becomes a conviction in your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for not leaving us guessing. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ, a a real individual who lived, who preached, who healed, who performed all signs and wonders so that we might believe that he is the Christ. Thank you that he is resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of God. Thank you that we base the conviction of what we don't know based on the assurance of what we do know. So if you would, Lord, as we work through our passage this morning, would you draw us closer into a place of trusting you, even in those things we don't fully understand? We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And we'll begin reading there if you want to follow along with me. It says in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now I want you to note, as we look at our passage this morning, it's going to give you several options of places that you can put your faith. The first place you can put your faith is in the power of politics. That's what we see going on here. Trusting in in powerful people to support your personal agenda. Doing what you think they need to do because of what you think is right. That's what we're going to see playing out in our passage here this morning. This will make more sense if we can give you a little bit of a backstory into what's happening here because we're introduced to a, a brand new character here in verse 1 of chapter 12. He's called by the author as Herod the King. Now, we know from history that this is more specifically Herod Agrippa. See, Herod was more like a a, a family name. There were several Herods during the life of Christ carrying over into the early church. How many of you ever watched the uh, TV show The Blue Bloods? Okay. If you ever seen that show, you know about the Reagans, right? It's a family of police officers where the Herods are a family of royalty. They were raised to be rulers. And they all had one thing in common. They all placed their faith in the power 
of politics. They used the political system to gain influence over people. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great, which we know as the one who ruled during the time of Christ. As a member of the royal family, Herod Agrippa was afforded certain privileges, and one of them was to be educated among the privileged in Rome. In fact, he had a best friend by the name of Caligula. What's important about Caligula is at the time when they were friends, he was to be the heir apparent to become the next emperor. So he was best friends with what would become the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. And as you would expect, when Herod Agrippa moved into power, he gave, or excuse me, when Caligula was moved into power as the next emperor, he gave his friend Agrippa a place of influence and of authority. He made him a prince. And Herod worked his way through the political system until he became a king. In, in, our, in the context of our passage this morning, he is the king of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It is actually the same area for his father, Herod the Great. He had accomplished something that was really amazing for him in that time. But as we know, power as a politician is based on pleasing people, no matter what the cost. And Grippa was always trying to impress the Jewish people. The reason is, he's a leader of a people, in large part being the Jews, to whom he did not belong. See, Agrippa was a descendant of Esau. The Jewish people are descendants of Isaac. And so very often, the Jewish people looked at those who descended from Esau with some level of suspicion. And so Agrippa was known to do everything he could to fit in to the Jewish community. He was very zealous in his religious practices. He always involved himself in the Jewish festivals. And so what we see happening here in chapter 12 is nothing less than political maneuvering. See, Herod Agrippa, don't miss this. Herod Agrippa was persecuting Christians in order to gain favor with the Jews. That's what's happening here. That's why it says in verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. See, these men weren't guilty of any particular crime. They were simply pawns in Herod Agrippa's struggle for power. When it, say, it says that, that James was put to death with a sword, it means that he was beheaded. See, these men were not guilty of a crime. We know that James was one of the three primary apostles, right? James and Peter and John. These three were kind of the head of the church at that time. Agrippa was trying to gain influence with the Jewish population by taking out the Christian leadership. Do you see that? Power in politics is based on pleasing people. Plain and simple, that's exactly what is happening here. Agrippa is willing to kill innocent people in order to gain influence over others. And make no mistake, he's planning on doing the very same thing with Peter. The only reason he didn't kill Peter, it says in our passage, was because 
it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, Agrippa is really good at playing this religious game. He holds a Torah in one hand and a sword in the other. But ultimately, he placed his faith in the power of politics. And the Jews were all on board. Remember, it pleased them. Because they were working hard to get the person in power to do what they felt like was right. Peter was arrested. He was in prison. And ultimately, he's awaiting his death. It says that he was guarded by four squads of soldiers. That's 16 men. Two of them were actually chained to Peter inside his prison cell. Peter was to be executed. It said it's going to bring him out. It was going to be a public spectacle for everyone to see so that everyone would understand the power of the king. Do you see what's happening here? Now look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and it struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by an angel was real, but thought maybe he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along in one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So now we have another category. Here you see a different set of people who are putting their faith in the power of prayer. It says that they prayed fervently. In the original language, that's a word that means to stretch or to strain. So what it tells you is that these people were agonizing in prayer. They were straining in prayer. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed like that? I think probably many of you have. I know I have. I prayed fervently when my brother had cancer. I agonized in prayer. I'm praying fervently right now for my friend Jared Hardy and for the Hardy family. I am agonizing in prayer. I told Mark this morning, (coughs) for whatever reason, the Lord has been waking me up pretty consistently at 4 o'clock in the morning. I wish he wouldn't do that. It's kind of annoying. But (laughs) when it happens, the only thing I know to do because I can't go back to sleep is just pray for people. And the first person that always comes to my mind is Jared Hardy. I am agonizing in prayer my friend you see the christians in this passage don't possess any power on their own they're outcasts they are the objects of persecution they deeply care for peter but please understand there is absolutely nothing they can do except to pray and so that's where they put all of their hope they are trusting in the power of prayer And we see here, 
that God answers their prayer. He sends an angel into the prison cell where he's chained to other guards. And in that instant, Peter is awoken and everybody else remains asleep or unable to see what's going on. And when Peter understands what's happening, he he just follows the instruction. The chains fall off his hands. They walk out doors that automatically open in front of them. They end up in the middle of the street and then the angel disappears and goes somewhere else. Despite the power of King Herod, the power of prayer has proven to be greater still. Look at what happens in verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he went and knocked at the door of the gate. A a servant girl named Rhoda came to the answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the front of the gate. And they said to you, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it, it's an angel. But, but Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw it was him. And they were amazed. But mentioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and said, report these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Once Peter was set free, he knew exactly where to go. He went to the house where he knew that they would be praying for him. We learned that it was the house of Mary, the the mother of John Mark. It's interesting here because John Mark is the one who eventually becomes the author of the Gospel of Mark. This is the first time that he's mentioned in Scripture, praying along with the other people in his house with his mom and family. It's kind of a funny scene if you really stop and kind of think about what's happening here. Peter's knocking at the door. This woman comes, hears his voice, is so excited, she leaves him standing outside. (laughs) Here he has escaped from prison. She leaves him standing outside, goes in to tell everybody what's going on, and nobody believes her. (laughs) I mean, thinks it maybe an angel, or more likely she's just out of her mind. She's hearing things. It's someone else, but it can't be Peter. Suffice it to say, that's not what they expected, right? Now, they were praying. They were praying for Peter's protection. But I can assure you of this. No one was sitting in that prayer meeting as they were agonizing over prayer, saying to the Lord, Lord, if you could just send an angel into his prison cell, and if you just tell that angel to to speak and let the chains fall off. Yeah, yeah. And and after you do that, if you would just lead him out and let let the doors open automatically. That would be great. They were praying for Peter, but I promise that was not their prayer. That's why they were shocked when Peter came to the door. So if you're thinking as you hear this scene, I'm not so sure this is true. Be comforted because they didn't think it was true either. And they were the ones praying. God was doing something over and beyond what they could ask or imagine just because they couldn't come up with the idea on their own didn't mean it wasn't true. God has proven himself to be faithful to those who trust him. The power of prayer is when we relinquish control. 
believing in his infinite wisdom instead of relying on our limited understanding. See, I want you to think about this because we see the contrast in these two examples. When you put your faith in people with power, it makes you very anxious because you have to really work hard to get them to do what you think they should be doing. But when you put your faith in the power of God, it gives you peace because you know that he can do more than you can ask or imagine. And he's always good. See the difference? Look at I continue in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers, I bet, as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, from Judea to Caesarea, and was spending time there. There he goes again. Herod Agrippa, using his power to protect his influence over people, whatever the cost, even if that means killing innocent men. See, Peter's escape was an embarrassment to his rule. Instead of maybe considering just for a moment that there's some divine intervention going on here because this truly does defy any explanation, he just takes matters into his own hands and has all 12 men executed. Kills them. Faithful soldiers working for him, and he kills them. After all, who needs God when you have the power of a king? Remember, everyone is a person of faith. It's just a matter of where you place your faith. Look at how he continues in verse 20. Now, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Let me kind of explain what's going on here. Remember, the power of politics is based on pleasing people, right? And apparently, the people of Tyre and Sidon are not very pleased with Herod. And here's why. See, in verse 19, that he goes from Judea into Caesarea. Caesarea, as we've already talked about, because that's where Cornelius was. Remember, this is a, a very famous, uh, important uh, port city, right? It was actually built by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. And it was made the major port city of that area. It's a very, like a Roman capital during that time. Well, the problem is that Tyre and Sidon are both port cities as well, but they cannot compete with Caesarea. All the attention on Caesarea has severely damaged the economy of Tyre and Sidon. You see, the reason that Agrippa is furious is because the chamberlain, which is kind of like a chief of staff, has gained favor with those people. The reason that Herod is furious is because people are more interested in following his chamberlain than following him. The reason Agrippa is so mad is because someone has gained the ear of the people and it's not him. Power in politics is based on pleasing people. 
And so to ensure his place of influence, this is what he does. He makes an agreement with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And then he plans an event to commemorate. And he's going to give a big speech for everyone to recognize how great Herod Agrippa really is. And it works. It works. Look at what it says in verse 22. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. This is exactly what Agrippa wanted to happen. There's a Jewish historian. His name is Josepha. And he writes history of what took place during this time of the early church. And he actually writes about this event. And he says that what happened on this particular day is that Herod Agrippa shows up in a robe made of silver. And when the light would shine on it, it would sparkle, kind of like you would expect a sequin dress to. I mean, it made him look like a god, which is why the people made the comment that they did. And I want you to notice how willing Agrippa was to accept their praise. His sinful heart was satisfied by the adoration of the people. It's exactly what he wanted to see happen. But look at verse 23. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him, Agrippa, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. See, God judged Agrippa for accepting praise that did not belong to him. He's judged for portraying himself to be a God and becoming a distraction to the one true God. His charade was ultimately keeping people from seeing the salvation of the Lord. And so God's act of a judgment on Agrippa was an act of mercy for the people. Do you see that? The salvation of the Lord is found only in the message of the gospel. The object of their faith really matters. And the scripture is clear. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. You can trust in a lot of other things. But only Jesus can set you free. See, powerful people might fulfill your personal agenda. But only Jesus Christ can save your soul. So as we think about this passage this morning, I want you to just consider this question. Where do you place your faith? Remember, all people of faith, every person, religious, non-religious, science, sports, it doesn't matter. We are all people of faith. The only difference is the object of our faith. And so, are you more like Agrippa? Where you find your security in your success and accomplishments, bolstered by your pride and the affirmation of other people. Is that where you place your faith? Or are you more like the people gathered in Mary's house, crying out to God in prayer, believing that He's their only hope? Just take a moment and, and be honest with yourself. Do you rely more on what you can do or on what God has promised? Do you rely more on what you can do, what you can accomplish, affirmed by the praise of other people? Or you trust in God as your only hope because there's nothing you can do without Him? 
As you reflect on that question, I want you to consider something that I sincerely believe is true. And I believe it's true because I see it all throughout Scripture, and it is this. You might write this down, okay? God has never refused to rescue those who truly trust in Him. Don't miss it. God has never refused to rescue those who truly trust in Him. Never. Never. My confidence in this statement goes back to what we see in Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about when we celebrated communion together, we talked about the passage in John 10, right? Where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. We're the sheep. He willingly laid down his life paying a punishment that we deserved for the forgiveness of our sins. He goes on in that same chapter in verse 24. It says that the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, then tell us plainly. Well, the reality is he has, just like he did with the religious leaders when they asked him the very same question. But listen to how he responds. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then listen to this. I and the Father are one. When you see Jesus, you see God. Because He has made Himself known. It's not a blind faith. It's a conviction on what we know to be true. There's no greater place of security than knowing you belong to God. When he is the object of your faith, you're eternally secure. And God has never refused to rescue anyone who has truly put their trust in him. Never. Now, that being said, I don't want us to overlook something that's really important in our passage this morning. We learn from our passage that James was arrested before Peter, right? Let me ask you this. Do you think that the Peter, people who were praying for Peter were also praying for James? Sure they were. But James was beheaded. Peter was rescued. Does that mean God only answered the second prayer and didn't answer the first? Was Peter the only one that was rescued? Think about it. It's my conviction that God rescued them both. You'll remember, I agonized in prayer for my brother. And I want you to know when I prayed, (laughs) I only had one outcome in mind. That was the reason for my prayer. But it was my brother who taught me He said, Todd, your prayer is going to be answered. 
Either way, I'm going to be healed. I don't know if it's on this side of heaven or the next, but I will be healed. You see, that's why I believe, based on what I was taught by my brother, that both James and Peter were rescued. Because here's the reality. Eventually, they're both going to die. But neither one of them will perish. That's the promise that Jesus made. They were both rescued. They are eternally secure, saved from their sin because of the forgiveness and grace of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a promise. So look, for all of us, until the Lord comes home, we need to be fervent in prayer. We need to agonize in prayer for the people that we love. And we should believe in what seems impossible to us because of what we know to be true about the God we serve. But we also know that we make our requests with a limited understanding. And yet we serve a God whose wisdom is based on an infinite knowledge. Our confident assurance is that God has never refused to rescue those who truly trust in him. He's proven himself to be faithful. And so even when we don't have all the answers, he is worthy of our trust. There's a passage in Psalm 910 that says it better than my whole entire sermon. And so I want you to listen closely to what it says. It says, in those who know your name, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who trust you. It's a promise. That's why I believe it's true. And so as we finish up this morning, we're going to sing a song together about what it means to trust in the Lord. And let me urge you, as we've always done with these songs to close our time, is to turn them into a personal prayer. I want you to think about what it means to trust in what you don't understand because of the one you know to be true. Amen? Let's do that together. Please stand. got a lot of options in this world places you can put your trust and they all create a level of anxiety except for one because the others you have to manipulate to get them to do what you think it needs to be done but the other one will do exactly what needs to be done because it's good and right and true and he is faithful and worthy of our trust and he has proven that None will perish, but all will come to eternal life. That's where we put our trust. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your promises that you don't leave us guessing, that you've made yourself known, that we can look at the person and work of Jesus Christ and have great assurance and conviction. Even in the things that we don't know, we can be certain that you do. And that you will fulfill all that you have promised because you have proven to be faithful and worthy of our trust. May that create a great sense of peace and a heart of gratitude that lives with a life of obedience and praise. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Have a great day.